It's a great uh, privilege and uh, pleasure that you invite me to share with you on this uh, Friday morning to uh, think again of our Lord Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection, the salvation that he has won for us. Uh, as an Australian, I can generally recognise other Australians because they're the ones who speak English without an accent. Um, I'm going to talk about wrath rather than wrath. And so just get used to it, will you? Uh, you will learn one day how to speak proper. <laughs> English is a wonderful language. It unites the world in divisions. And so let us turn in our Bibles to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. It's uh, page 707 if you have one of the church Bibles here, page 707, and I'm reading Mark 14 from verse 32. Verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Once more he went away and prayed to the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, are you still asleep?" And resting. Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let's go. Here comes my betrayer. In this passage, we're listening into a child's prayer. There's nothing more intimate and private than your prayer life. And to listen to somebody else's prayers is to listen into their very soul. So we're listening into Jesus' prayer. We're, when we do that, we're walking, in a sense, on holy ground. All the more as it's his prayer about his death. And as he prepared himself for the ordeal he was about to endure. In listening in, we're going to learn about all kinds of topics for the next few moments. We'll learn about prayer itself, about the Trinity, about temptation, but especially about death and wrath, and most particularly about the love of God. But there's much more. So keep that passage open in front of you. There's some opportunities for writing notes you'll find in your church book here that you may take up as well. See, what we see in the garden is the unusual Jesus. It's not as we usually see him in Mark's gospel. 
Here we see him as deeply distressed and troubled, overwhelmed with sorrow. He usually is the calm Jesus, in control of all things. So in Mark chapter 4, where there's a great storm rising up and everybody else is panicked, Jesus is in the back of the, sleep, back of the ship asleep. In Mark 5, Jesus was the man who took control of the legion of demons in a man. He healed the woman with a flow of blood. He raised Jairus' daughter. He walked on the water and he tells people, don't be afraid. In fact, we constantly see Jesus in Mark's gospel as the strong man in control of all and every circumstance. We see the resolute Jesus resolutely setting his face towards Jerusalem. His disciples are afraid, but he keeps on going ahead of them, knowing what is going to happen, fearlessly leading the way. And throughout the Gospel of Mark, we keep seeing the disciples as the foils of Jesus. He's not afraid, they are afraid. He knows what's happening, they are completely confused. He speaks the truth, they don't know what to say. Sometimes when they don't understand what he's saying, they speak up with bravado. I can drink the cup you're going to drink. I will never fall away. But of course they can't drink the cup that he is going to drink and of course they all fall away. And in this section of prayer, we'll see the disciples falling once more. For Jesus was facing death. And the disciples had come with him, three in particular, quite close to him. But now, they fell asleep. Even though Jesus was unusually anxious and bids them to stay awake, so that they will not fall into temptation, they fall asleep. And again, and again. If you've ever read Socrates about his death, we get a very different picture of how a great leader dies and how his disciples relate to him. Socrates, in the face of death, is calm and philosophic about it all. Having a dialogue with his disciples about grieving and whether they're grieving for him or grieving for themselves having a discussion about death being no grounds for grieving at all. So persuasive is Socrates that his disciples question whether or not they should die with him, seeing death was going to be so much better. And so Socrates then has to set out to have a dialogue with them to persuade them not to commit suicide. And it's the first, almost, of the Western literature on the subject against suicide and the reasons not to suicide are given by Socrates at this point in his death. But when Jesus faces death, he's not in calm philosophical discussion with his disciples. He shrinks back in horror. And so we read in verse 33, he was greatly distressed and his soul was sorrowful, even to the point of death. This is because he knew from the Bible on death what Socrates did not know. He knew what death held for him. Socrates said, but it's now time to depart. For me to die, 
for you to live. But which is going to be a better state is unknown to everyone but God. But you see, unlike Socrates, Jesus did know which was the better state. Jesus did know what was going to happen. He knew that death was the wages of sin. He knew that death is the judgment of God. He knew that in his death, he who knew no sin was to become sin. He knew that in death he would be forsaken and abandoned by his father. He already knew that in death he would be so forsaken by his father that to call out in the words of the psalm, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knew what Socrates didn't know, the wrath of God. That he, the servant of God, would be bearing the sin of the world to sign aside God's righteous anger. And so he withdrew, sorrowful, distressed. What we have here is Jesus praying in the face of God's wrath. The summary of the prayer is found for us there in verse 35 where it explains what it is that is going to happen. Going a little farther, he fell down on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He's asking or saying two things. If it is all possible, the hour might pass. That is, he was praying not to die. He didn't want to die. He didn't want to go to the cross, which is right. He shouldn't want to die. He didn't and shouldn't want God's wrath upon him. He didn't want to be separated from his father, abandoned by his father. And so he asks for the cup of God's wrath to be removed from him. As God had removed it, back in Isaiah 51, the cup of his wrath was being poured out upon Israel, but he removed it at the last moment, so they didn't have to drink all the way down to the dregs. It may still be possible. There may be some other way than the cross. There may be some other time, some other hour, when we could come to this. This hour of his appointment with death, the hour of his betrayal to death, the hour of his judgment... Maybe somehow it could be delayed, put off, missed completely. And so the content of the prayer is spelt out in verse 36. Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. Let's take that apart bit by bit, if your eyes are on it. Firstly, notice how he addresses God. Abba, Father. Uh, Christians are so used to calling God Father in this personal way that we miss how extraordinary it was. Others, until the time of Jesus, did not call upon God in such personal terms as this. The close, loving approach to God was one of the distinctive characteristics of Jesus himself. He called God 
father. For he called for a father's protection and provision. He called on his father with submission and reliance. He understood what fathers and sons are about. You fathers, you know how you love to have your children lovingly, trustingly asking you for something. Even though we are sinful, we fathers, we still love to give good gifts to our children. We know how much of a father it makes you feel when you're able to provide for your child, when you're able to protect your child. Nothing makes you feel quite so fatherly as to be able to provide and protect for your little one when they ask for it. Secondly, Jesus acknowledges his father's power. Everything is possible to you. Jesus had taught this himself. He said of the father who had a boy with a spirit, an evil spirit, if you can, all things are possible to the one who believes. He said to the disciples about being saved in Mark chapter 10, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Jesus was not praying to an impotent father, but to the omnipotent God of all the world, to the Father who could stop it now, to the Father who could put 12 legions of angels at his disposal to overcome whatever he may be facing. And so thirdly, he makes his request. Take this cup from me. Remove it. Take it away. He, only, he knew only too well that what this cup was, was the cup of God's wrath. The cup he told his disciples about back in chapter 10 that he had to drink and that they couldn't. There was no other one who could drink it for us for there was no other one good enough to pay the price for sin. Before the foundation of the world, he had been chosen for it. Before he was born, the Old Testament had predicted it. Throughout his ministries, Jesus the prophet consistently prophesied his death. But yet now, face to face with the horror of it, he prays, if there is any other possible way, please take this cup from me. Why? Why does he pray like this? Because what he was about to experience is so horrid, so awful, so fearful, so unbearable, so horrendous, so appalling. As the scripture says, it's a dreadful thing, a thing full of dread. A dreadful thing to fall into the hand of the living God. For God is described in that scriptures as our God is a consuming fire. Friends, we in Australia, we have lost the awesome horror of hell. 
The wrath of God is reduced in our churches. It's rejected in our community. And it's ridiculed by our comedians. And so becomes remote even for Christians. But Jesus knew what he was dealing with. Jesus, when facing it, asked repeatedly whether if there was any way out, any way to avoid, any way to avoid even what God's word had revealed and he himself had prophesied. However, in the midst of this fearful horror, he also prays, yet not what I will, but what you will. It's a marvellous little word yet, or but. It's, it's the word that saves us so often in the scriptures. We are dreadfully sinful, but we are doomed to condemnation, but. For here we have the Son praying to the Father in perfect submission. Not just a son, but the son. Not just the son, but the righteous son to his father. For Jesus is the sinless one. And therefore, not self-serving, but God-serving. Not self-saving, but other people-saving. Loving God with all heart, soul, strength and mind. Loving others as yourself. Here in not my will but your will be done. We see the commandment being fulfilled. As the ironic word of ridicule comes to him as he hung upon the cross. He saved others. He cannot save himself. A word of ridicule that was completely true. So while he expresses his righteous desire not to die, he also affirms his ultimate desire to serve his father's will, not his own desires. When confronted with a choice between two right options, there is nothing better than choosing the ultimate right of doing God's will. Some people very foolishly say that we mustn't pray if it be your will, for such prayer is lack of faith, as if God can't do it. But Jesus prayed that way, and that seems a good enough reason to pray that way. Jesus prayed that way, even knowing God's revealed will. It wasn't lack of faith, it was actually the expression of faith. Faith is handing it over to God. Faith is saying, you do what is right. I trust you with this. It's the absolute expression, the clearest expression of faith to say, not my way, but your way is the way. As we're told in Hebrews 5, that Jesus, through his cries and tears, learnt obedience and was heard because of his reverence and his godly fear. It was this response that he made that led for his prayers to be heard. But how? How were Jesus' prayers heard? He asked not to die. 
and he died. So how was his prayer heard? He prayed to the one who was able to save him from death. But the answer apparently was no. Here we have the perfect son praying to the perfect father, yet his request is denied. He is the father for whom all things are possible, who knows how to give good gifts to his children, and his son doesn't deserve death, and he asks in faithful submission, and yet he died. It looks as if he wasn't heard, for within the next day, he was crucified. So how was he heard? Well, let me suggest to you three ways. Firstly, what he ultimately asked for was God's will to be done. And it was. For the answer to that prayer was yes. For this reason he was sent into the world that he might save us. Secondly, as Hebrews 5 says, he learnt obedience. And not in the sense of learning to be obedient, he was that, but in the sense of learning what obedience means, what obedience costs, what it costs to be an obedient person in a sinful world. You see, prayer is answered at several levels, not simply in giving you what you ask for, but also in what God wants to give you. He will give you other things that you weren't consciously asking for. Thirdly, he didn't fall in temptation. For remember how Jesus warned his disciples, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Jesus watched, Jesus prayed, Jesus did not fall into temptation. Whereas Peter, John, John, they prayed. No, they slept. They watched. No, they slept. And they fell into temptation. Many years later, the Apostle Peter wrote of Jesus. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus did not fall into temptation, but continued in righteousness to the very end, faithful even unto death. However, the disciples, they didn't watch, they didn't pray, and they deserted him and fled. One even fled naked, he was so desperate to get away. And loudmouth Peter, bravely Peter, he drew his sword. He even followed Jesus to his trial, only to deny him three times. With curses and swearing at the threat of a young maid. Jesus' prayer was heard in that he received what he asked for, God's will to be done, in that he learnt obedience and that he didn't fall into temptation. So then let us look at the lessons from this prayer. There's many more than I can give you in these few minutes that remain to me, but let me give you five of them. Firstly, about prayer. See, prayer is the way to approach God as Father, 
our heavenly, almighty, loving Father who provides good gifts to his children. You can certainly pray to Jesus if you wish. You can pray to the Holy Spirit if you wish. But in the New Testament, you pray to God as Father. It is the Father to whom you pray because you are depending upon him for protection and for provision and that's the fatherly job. The rightness of asking our Father for anything is seen here. Expressing our desires and our wants to him the rightness of placing our desires in the context of God's will be done, not mine. I'm asking for this because I trust you not only to give me this, but to deny me this if it's bad for me and to give me that and something else that you wish to, whatever it may be. I'm placing my concerns in your hands, please, Father. The way in which we are heard is many-layered and complex because prayer is not a shopping list. Prayer is an expression of our relationship with God. I ask my father for something and he gives me something better. Prayer is asking. That's all it is. It's asking. But it's asking our heavenly father to take charge of us and our situation, our concerns, our worries, our anxieties. It's putting them all in his hands and saying, I want your will done rather than mine. Secondly, we learn something of the Trinity here in the operation, not the whole, of course. The Spirit is not mentioned here, just the Father and the Son. But even though the Father and the Son are equally God, yet... The son prays to his father as his God. The son submits willingly to the father, seeking to do his father's will above his own. Submission to the will of another is not to remove equality. You can be equal and submit. In fact, we must submit to our governments. That is not to say they are anything other than human or they are anything superior to us, but they are appointed to rule over us as we are appointed to submit to them. Our Heavenly Father and our glorious Lord Jesus are equally God, the one God and same God, yet the Son submits to the Father. Or thirdly, we see something about temptation. By prayerful watchfulness, the disciples fall as Jesus succeeds in defeating temptation. And so often we fall to proactively pray and commit things to God's will and then we find ourselves in the context of temptation unprepared for the conflict that we are in. But more significantly we learn of the death and wrath The wrath of God on our sin. For here as Jesus struggles in prayer, we see the horror of sin bearing, the awesome pain, not the physical suffering of resurrection. It was physical suffering, but that was not the point. It wasn't the point from the Romans' point of view. It wasn't the point from Jesus' point of view. For the Romans, it's a political statement, a a crucifixion. There's lots of ways you can kill people, even more painfully than crucifixion, but there's no way you can do it more shamefully. There's no way you can do it that holds the person up into contempt 
It holds his mission up into contempt more than to publicly make fun of the very act of killing by crucifixion. It is a terrorist campaign at that point. That is why people were crucified by the Romans. But it's not the physical suffering that we see here. It's not the death of martyrdom which we see here. It's the awesome pain of the sinless one about to become sin, about to receive God's wrath on our behalf. For there on the cross, the Father and the Son, who had lived for all eternity in perfect unity, the Father and the Son, who were one, the Father and the Son took the sin of the world took your sin, my sin, took the sin of the world into their perfect relationship and it was rent asunder. As one man put it, mystery upon mysteries, God deserts God. Your sin, my sin, our sin split the relationship of the Father and the Son. And it is in this prayer in Gethsemane that we have the privilege. It's more than that. It's the audacity to listen in to the personal struggle and angst of the Son of God struggling in his wrestle and death under the wrath of God. If there was any other way, would not God have chosen it? Everything is possible to you. Take this cup from me. How blasphemous it is when we think sin doesn't matter. How blasphemous it is when we think that sin isn't important. That my sin, that the thing I do doesn't really signify anything. How blasphemous it is when we think we're good enough for God. How blasphemous it is when we think that there is some other way to God than Jesus, some other saviour, some other name. How blasphemous it is when we think that God doesn't care about us. Which therefore leads me to the final point to be really made. It's a new point, but it's the summary of everything I've said so far. For in the garden at this time of his prayer, we see the love of God. I don't like the trivial and trite, God loves you. It's like saying, well, have a nice day, you know, enjoy your meal. I don't like it because... I've read what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus prayed to his father. You fathers, imagine. Imagine your child pleading for you, crying out to you for something you cannot give. For something that's good, that's deserved, but you can't give it. Imagine them asking with tears 
for tears for something you can give and yet for the sake of some bigger purpose you will not give it to them now. It breaks a father's heart not to be able to provide for their children. Here is the perfect, omnipotent father listening to his perfect son in deep distress, in trouble and overwhelming sorrow, pleading for an alternative, crying out for the life he deserves. And why does the father will his death? Why? Why does the father say no to this request? For our salvation. That's why. For you. For me. For sinners such as we. Paul wrote, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. John wrote, see what kind of love the Father has given that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. Or that most famous verse of the whole Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Have you pondered that verse? Which is the most important word in that verse? God? Love? The world? Only son? Whoever? Believes? Not perish? Have? Eternal life. They're all important, of course. But which is the most important in the logic of that verse, do you think? I think the most important word is so. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So loved. It's the extent of his love and it's the nature of his love. He so loved. In this way, this nature, to this extent, this much, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, here in the Garden of Gethsemane, when with tears his boy called out to him. If you do not know this Saviour, if you do not know this love of God, then make sure you ask a Christian friend about it this day. Find out Turn to God. For when you know this Saviour, then praise God that he has loved us.
that he has loved us so much. And see how his love constrains us in all that we now do and think and pray and act. For you can never come to meet the love of God in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and remain the same. For if you know the love of God in the cross of Jesus, you know the forgiveness of sins that he has won for you that you never deserved, could never pay for, and came at such incredible cost to the Father and to the Son. And knowing that not only brings the joy of forgiveness and new relationship with God and reconciliation, but endless praise and thankfulness in our hearts and a completely different motivation for the way we now live. Father, everything is possible to you. Take this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your loving kindness to us that is so great as to hear your son's prayer and to continue with our salvation. We thank you that your son was indeed the righteous one, submitting to your will, even to the point of death, even death on the cross, suffering your wrath for us. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for your salvation plan and for your Son, for your love and for his willing love of us as well. And we praise you, Father, in his name, for there is no other name by which men must be saved than that of Jesus. And so we praise you in his name and thank you for him and his death for us. We pray, Father, that we may make this known to others. We pray for any amongst us this day who do not know of this forgiveness of sins and who have heard only this day of what you have done to bring us such forgiveness, that by your Spirit, Father, we may all come to know you as our Father and Jesus as our Saviour and Lord so that we might participate in the great reconciliation, the great forgiveness. And we pray, Father, that having been so born again by your Spirit, we may all continue to love one another as Christ our Lord loved us, that we might submit to you, loving you with all our heart and soul and strength and mind, and loving our neighbour as ourselves, that growing like the Lord Jesus Christ, constrained by his love, that we may no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us and was raised again.
And we ask this all through the name of the blessed Lord and Saviour of whom we've spoken, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.